Welcome to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church Podcast. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and inspires you to step into the life God has for you. For more information about our church, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com. If you have your Bibles, will you join me in John's Gospel, chapter 18? We have a pretty hefty journey in front of us this morning, so we're going to try to go at a little bit quicker pace than maybe as we're used to. So John's Gospel, uh, chapter 18, and then we're going to, to provide a little context. We're going to be jumping into Matthew chapter 26 as well, so if you want to go ahead and find that as well. But John's Gospel, chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell on the ground. So he asked them again, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am him. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So what we are seeing in this moment is the teaching ministry of Jesus here on earth has concluded. Let's look at verse 1 and let's begin the process of unpacking this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where he, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, this wasn't just any garden. This was the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to see that in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. And this was a sacred place, and it wasn't a garden like we oftentimes think of when we think of gardens. We think of gardens, we think of blooming flowers, but this was not the case. There was a section there that was kind of indicative of that, but this was an olive grove. So there would be these large trees, these beautiful trees, and there it would produce olives, and they would press the olives there. From where Jesus is standing, if you ever have the opportunity to go to Israel, you will notice that where he is standing, you can see the gate in which we will later see the soldiers, his enemy, Judas, enter into. But you can also see the eastern wall of Jerusalem. So if you have your scriptures, once again, let's, let's take a look at, at Matthew chapter 26. And this will offer, because 
John is a little bit vague in some of the details in which he delineates, but I think the context is really important for this morning. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time in in Matthew's gospel just creating some handles, uh, framing what we're going to discuss as we move towards the Lord's Supper uh, in conclusion of this morning. So Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36 Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane, it simply means the place of crushing. There has been first century olive presses that have been discovered. And it's important to know the process of extracting oil from the olives themselves. The first measure, they would have three approaches. The first would be that they would take a sack and they would load the sack full of the olives. And the weight and the gravity and the pressure of the olives upon one another it would produce an oil that would drip from the bottom of the the bags and they would capture that. And then they would take the bag and they would empty the olives, the fruit themselves, onto this press and they would smash them, if you will. And that would produce another form of oil. And then they were left with just the pits. So they would take the olive pits and they would crush them. And that, once again, would produce another form of olive oil. Now, the reason that this is important is because you see this comparison, this metaphor of Jesus himself in comparison to the, uh, the olive. You see, Jesus, he recognizes in this moment that he too is about to go through three different forms of crushing. He's going to go to the house of Caiaphas. There, they're going to put a bag over his head. They're going to strike him. They're going to spit upon him. They're going to curse him. They're going to mock him. There is this form of physical crushing. There is this form of mental, emotional crushing. And then there is this form of spiritual crushing that he is going to face. Because once he leaves the house of Caiaphas, he finds himself in the accompaniment of Pilate. And Pilate has him flogged so severely that he no longer resembles that of a human being. Then from there, he will go to the cross. And there he will endure the wrath of God. It will be a spiritual crushing of form and of a sense. So Jesus says in verse 35, Matthew's Gospel 26, sit there or sit here a while and I'm going to go over there and I'm going to pray. And then verse 37, and taking with him Peter and James and John, He began to be sorrowful, and he began to be troubled. Once again, let's not rush past this. Have you been there? Have you struggled with fear, with anxiety? Have there been moments in your life in which you have felt depressed? Have there been moments in your life that you have been gripped by grief? Have there been moments, and this is rhetorical, because if you've lived enough life, then the answer is, of course, Luke. Have you felt overwhelmed? This morning, where you're sitting, do you feel overwhelmed? And if your answer is, yeah, I do. What we have to glean from this passage 
is that Jesus is not indifferent to that. He's not neglectful of that. He's not absent of that. He recognizes that. He identifies in that moment as being one that has experienced sorrow and being overwhelmed. I am so thankful in these moments that I find myself sorrowful or being overwhelmed or being just absolutely an emotional wreck. That God is not a God that you've heard me say before stands on the other side of the valley and he's standing there saying, suck it up, buttercup. And when you get all your life together, when you get all of your proverbial ducks in a row, grow up, man up, put a helmet on, come to the other side and there I will embrace you. There I will welcome you. There you will find joy. There you will find peace. It's quite the opposite. The Old Testament writer says that Jesus is close to the brokenhearted. That he mends the broken pieces of our hearts back together. That he draws near when we are brokenhearted. Scripture reminds us that the same God who hangs the stars in the sky who knows the number of hairs on your head. He loves you. He sees you. He cares deeply for you. And no matter what you are going through, no matter where you have been or what you have done, he is for you. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. So Matthew 26, verse 38, when it says, My soul, it is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. We are getting a small glimpse of the anguish in which Jesus is revealing that he finds himself in. The depths of that in this moment. So scripture goes on to say, going a little further, Jesus falls on his face in prayer. And we miss this in the English translation, but in the original language, what we recognize is that this is not a voluntary falling on the face That this is representative of the weight that Jesus was carrying in this moment. Have you ever walked in that season, had such a tragedy, been under so much emotional anguish in which your knees literally buckle beneath you? I I love you enough to tell you. That if you haven't, you will. We are all just one phone call away from finding ourselves in the fetal position crying out to God. And that's just a reality. And the beauty of what we see here is that Jesus understands. Luke chapter 22, verse 44 It gives us another vantage point of this moment in time and in history and in the life of Jesus. 
Luke 22, verse 44 says, In his agony, Jesus prayed even more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. A lot of, a lot of well-meaning grandmothers, from a place of sincerity with a desire to, to be of help and encouragement, have leaned into us somewhere along the way and have said to us, God will never give you more than you can handle. Have you ever heard that? Anybody ever said that to you? It's a lie. In fact, God will oftentimes intentionally allow us to find ourselves in situations and circumstances under conditions in which there's no way that we can handle them. There's no way that we can carry the weight. We're, we are driven to our literal knees and face in prayer. Why? Because God always wants us to find our dependence and the solution and the answer, not in try harder, be better, do better, be more intentional, more disciplined. No. In moments that we find ourselves, there is no way out. We're painted in the corner. There is no rescue in sight. Is that we cry out to a righteous and a holy God and God alone. Now, I think that where this phrase comes from is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And what that says is no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will always provide for you an escape that you may be able to endure it. In other words, there's never a reason... Our past, it doesn't define us, nor does it excuse us. So when we find ourselves carrying this weight in anguish, feeling overwhelmed, feeling anxious or fearful or depressed, you have no excuse and God never gives you permission to sin. He will always, without exception, provide an escape from doing something that is not his designed purpose and will and best for you. So when you say, I just needed this drink because just to take the edge off. If I didn't do this, I mean, I don't know what I... God never causes you to sin. And God never blesses Anything that is against his nature, his character, his will. That's what 1 Corinthians is saying. Not, hey, God will never put you in a situation that you big boy can't handle. It's quite the opposite. 
This is why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, what? We are more than conquerors because we get to stand on the promise and in the position of a God who has already done the heavy lifting. He has already won the victory that you desire and that you strive for and that you call for and that you pray for and that you plead and beg for. You just have to take the position that you've already stood in the winner's circle. Not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ Jesus did on your behalf. Continuing to read. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Matthew 26, verse 39. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless... Not as I will, but as you will. What Jesus is saying in this moment, it's not so much of a question as it is a declaration. This is a promise for you and I. This is direction for us. What Jesus is saying in this moment where he says, if there's, there's any way other than drinking this cup, then let's do that. He's saying, hey, if Oprah is right, and there's actually more than one way to the Father, then I I shouldn't have to drink this cup because there's several paths that will lead to good and right standing with the Father. So if there is more than one path, I don't have to do this. But John chapter 14, verse 6, reminds us, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus is not really asking a question. He's identifying the answer in this moment. If I don't drink this cup, we're all hopelessly lost, hopelessly broken. So verse 39, my father, once again, if it be possible, let this cup Pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And this cup in this moment, it is representative of the wrath of God. Every time you sin, every time I sin, let's make it personal for me. I'm going to make it on you too. Every time we sin, every time we sin, the wrath of God is poured into a cup. The wrath of God is judgment upon the unrighteous. 
Meaning that each and every one of us, one day, we will stand before a holy and a righteous God. And yes, this God is pure, unhindered love. And because he is loving, there is an element of discipline. How do you know I love my kids more than I love your kids? I have rules for my kids. I discipline my kids. I have expectations for my kids. I correct my kids. I shape and form my kids. God is a good father, and because he loves us, and because he knows what's best, there is righteous judgment that has to fall upon his children, and none of us can bear the weight of that. None of us, because of how much we give or how good we do, none of us stand before a righteous God blameless, meaning that each and every one of us, our What we are owed is eternal damnation, hell. And Jesus, in this beautiful moment, he takes all of the wrath of God that your sin and my sin is putting and filling this cup up with. And for those who have confessed Christ as Lord and Savior and surrendered to him, all those Christ in me, I in Christ, Jesus takes the cup of God's wrath and he drinks it and he slams it on the table and says, it is finished. Meaning that when God looks at you, if you are in Christ, Christ is in you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the drinker of the cup. His son, who is blameless and who is perfect, This is why Stephen, when he was about to be stoned, Scripture says that he looked at his accusers. He looked heavenward, and he knew he was about to meet God in this moment. And Scripture says that his face was not full of tremble or fear or angst, that he smiled, looking like that of an angel, at peace. Why? Because when he looked heavenward, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Why was he standing? He's always sitting because Jesus was standing in between a righteous God and a broken sinner. And he is saying, interceding on his behalf, I drank his cup. It's huge. Your face doesn't look like it, but it is huge. And you should be very glad about this. So continuing to read. Matthew 26, verse 45. Sleep and take your rest later. He's pleading with the disciples. See, the hour is at hand. We've talked about this hour throughout John's gospel. This is the hour at the wedding of Cana when his mother Mary came up to Jesus and said, we're out of wine, do something about it. And Jesus said, woman, My hour has not come. Why? Because he was pointing to this moment. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is about to be betrayed at the hands of sinners. So remember, 
Jesus is seeing through the gate the torches and the weapons and his friend who had walked beside him for three years, who had occupied a seat around the table, leading the charge. Judas was ahead of the pack. So Jesus says, wake up, boys. In verse 2 of John chapter 18, verse 2, all of that was in form of background, okay, context. So John chapter 18, verse 2 Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met with his disciples. Verse 3, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers, the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to him, I am he. This is the same terminology in which the burning bush in Exodus speaking to Moses, who shall I say sent me? I am. Verse 5, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. A lot of liberal professors and commentators and writers will say it was dark and they tripped and they fell. This is indicating a reality that each and every one of us walked through and will walk through. We will all bow before Jesus. Every knee will bow. The only question is, that's not the question. Every knee will bow. The only question is, will you bow here on earth and make him Lord? Or will you bow in judgment on the day of reckoning? But each and every person on the face of this earth will stand and will be brought to their knees and either surrender or in judgment. So he asked them again, verse 7, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, and if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that had been spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. What we see in this story, this is how I want us to enter into the table this morning. We see four different movements or characteristics or things, people in play in this story. We have that of Jesus, who represents full surrender. He is full of love. He is full of grace. He is full of truth. And for some of us in this room, you would say, you know what? Out of the four that you're going to delineate this morning, I, I actually 
relate most to Jesus. And if that's you, God bless your ministry, right? I mean, that's awesome. That's what we should be pursuing. We should all be pursuing being better image bearers of Christ Jesus. So you have perfect surrender. And on the other end of the spectrum here, you have the soldiers who completely deny Jesus as the way, the truth, the life. They would say, you're a good teacher. He was a good man. He did a lot of good things. I don't really have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is that he is the only way. And that is representative in that of the soldiers. And there's a lot of people within the sound of my voice are joining us online this morning. And that's where you find yourself this morning. Let's just be honest and let's claim it. You come to church, you look good, you smell good, you know all the words to all the songs, and you play the game really well. But you've not surrendered to his lordship. You don't believe that he is the only way, the truth of the life. You think there's, there's other options. And then you have that of, of, of Peter, which I actually relate a lot to. I think Peter has great intentions. He has a good heart. He's got good motives. But Peter is always getting in the way of himself. It was he who called out to Jesus, can I walk on the water with you? And Jesus said, come on, big boy. And he gets out there, and the waves and the storm stops moving, and he takes his eyes off Jesus, and, and, he, and, he, and he sinks. It was he that was warming himself by the fire who, who said earlier, I will never deny you. I will always stand with you. I will always defend you. And he, even to a little girl standing by a fire, a charcoal fire, says, I did not know him. He even curses at her. It was Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. You have the law and the prophets and Christ, deity, coming forward in this moment. And Peter decides, I'm going to make this about me. So he sticks his head in and says, hey, guys, it's good that we're together. Can I build you a tent? It was Peter who, whose confession of faith. Who do people say I am? You are Lord and Jesus said, hey, you got it. It didn't come from you, but you got it. And upon that confession of faith, I'm going to build my church. And on the same page of my Bible, Jesus then calls him Satan. It was Peter who stands in the garden and takes a swipe at Malchus's head and misses his neck and cuts his ear off instead, which was in direct disobedience to God. It was Peter who sat at the table and said, you will not wash my feet. Well, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you have nothing to do with me. Well, then wash my whole body too. If I examine Peter's life, I'm going to put my money that he's going to be the screw-up. He's going to be the betrayer because he's always messing up, which in my life sounds really familiar. And then you got Judas. Judas, he, if you look at him from the outside in, he's the model disciple. He sits around the table. He sees the same thing that the other 11 do, the miracles. He's passing out the bread. He's passing out the fish. He was trustworthy. He looked after the money. He from all intents and purposes, he was a good steward of the money. 
When the lady of the night comes in and breaks open a year salary of perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet, it was Judas who said, think about how many bellies of the poor that could feed or how many shoes that could put on feet. Think of all the good ways. I don't think we're being good stewards. And Jesus says, you always have the poor. I'm only with you for a little while. In other words, it's all about me. So when you look at Judas's life compared to Peter's life, well, I think that that is where the majority of us find ourselves, in one of those seats around the table. Do you know what the distinguishing mark that separates Peter from Judas. It wasn't the finances, the greed that handcuffed Judas. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, we find what happens. Beginning in verse 49 and reading through 50, we're not going to read there, but even in verse 25, Jesus begins to ask the question, who do people say I am? And you'll remember Peter's response, you're, you're Lord, you're Lord. Jesus around the table begins to delineate, articulate, one of you, you're going to betray me. And one by one, each disciple goes around the table and asks the question, Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Meaning that they recognize that they're broken, they're sinful, they're not beyond screwing up, messing up. They have made him Lord, but they also recognize that there's some work that he has to do in them. So 11 times, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And so on. And then you come to number 12. And Judas stands up and he says, is it I, Rabbi? Did you see it? Did you hear it? Judas Spent three years with Jesus. Had a relationship with Jesus. Knew all the songs, all the rhythms. He did a good work on behalf of Jesus. He fulfilled the mission. But he never made him Lord. He never surrendered. My fear as your pastor, is that there are going to be many people who stand before a righteous God and they're going to say, I sang the songs. I gave generously. I cast out demons. I prophesied. I evangelized. I fed the poor. I went on the mission trip. I loved well. And they're going to hear her in response. But you never knew me. What? 
you never made me Lord. You see, when we make him Lord, we bend our knee. We surrender. We do the hard work of heart work, and we stop making excuses for our sinfulness. We pursue righteousness with absolute abandonment. We pray daily, God, if there is anything in me that is not of you, any broken relationship, any unreconciled mess that I have contributed to, if there is anything in me that is not a representative of you, God, would you help me in this moment see it? And God, because my sin, it doesn't only affect me, it affects everyone around me. And because it puts me in wrong relationship with you. So because of that, I confess it. I grieve it. And when I confess it, I am confessing my inability to do anything with it apart from you. You are Lord. And then I repent of it. And when I repent, it means I don't return to it like a dog returning to its vomit. So this morning, as we sit around the table, as friends and as family, as we look at the cup and the bread, and if you do not have your elements at this moment, if you'll just raise your hand in the air, the, the ushers would be glad to get you that. But as your hand is lifted, I ask that you bow your head with me. God, in this moment, may it be a moment of surrender. God, in this moment, may it be a moment in which you bring that that is held in darkness into the light. So God, anything that is in us that is not of you, may your spirit, through prevenient grace or through indwelling, may we see it. May we grieve it. May we confess it. And may we repent of it. And God, in order to not return to that in which we have been enslaved to for so long, we recognize that your indwelling spirit must empower us and your community must surround us in accountability and encouragement and truth, love. So God, may we be stewards of that reality. And we, may we pursue healing and not just expect it. And Father, for those in the room who find themselves in the chair of Judas around this table, this family table this day, 
They have known you. They have seen you. They have loved you, but they have loved you with conditions. You're a good teacher. You're a good man. But I don't trust you to be my Lord. I don't trust you to give you this part of my life, this area of my living. May today be the day of total and full surrender to your Lordship. May they this day bow their name in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, when your heart is clear and you are ready, you may take the bread and you may remember the words of Jesus who said, every time you gather around the table, break the bread in remembrance of my body that was broken on your behalf. So eat in remembrance. And may you take the cup and may you reflect and ruminate on the words of Jesus when he says, each time you drink around this family table, do so in remembrance of my atoning blood that was poured out on your behalf. So drink with a joyful and glad heart. So Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for drinking the wrath so that we don't have to. God, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for relationship. Thank you for your love. May you be honored in our closing song. And we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, amen. Would you stand to your feet as we close in worship? Thanks for listening to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church podcast. We hope this message has inspired you to take a next step in your walk with Jesus. For more messages or to watch our full worship gathering on demand, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com.